This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's understand where we are medically and how that may inform the decision to reopen and how we ultimately do that. Dr. Andy Pekosh is back with us. He is a professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you might tell from the name. Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Pekosh, great to have you back with us. Thanks very much. So you guys have been doing some remarkable work and really have become the the gold standard when it comes to tracking the virus, the data that so many people are relying on. Help us understand where we are, especially in the context of these peaks or plateaus that you're hearing the governors talk about and how that may inform both regional and national uh, sort of getting back to business. Yeah, well, you know, everything's going to be focused on regions right now. Uh, Different regions of the countries are in different places in their curves. Um, You can hear things from New York about there being plateaus going on there. Places like Texas are still in their increased stages. So um, this is going to be really focused on individual regions, counties, cities, um, portions of states, um, monitoring how the epidemic is progressing in those particular regions. So... Yes. Okay. So how do you anticipate, um, Dr. Pekosh, that that will roll out in real time? Especially when, you know, Jason and I keep talking about this theme of, you know, fear versus greed. There is, you can feel it, the pressure to get the economy back open because we're starting to see some optimism in those numbers. And yet those numbers are only getting better because we're all staying at home. (laughs) Yeah, no. Uh, so the, what's going to have to come in parallel with um, with the cases going down is going to be a continued increase in our testing, and that testing is going to come in two forms. It'll come in continued testing for people who were infected, so looking for the virus uh, in these people, and then the second arm of that testing will be testing for antibodies, which will tell us if people actually were infected and are still maintaining some level of immunity to the virus. So those two tests are really going to help inform us in terms of how quickly we can start rolling out the uh, or rolling back some of the public health interventions. Okay, so you say that, and I feel like this has been the big question from day one, yeah. you know, getting more and more testing out there. We're still just testing small quantities of our society. So help me understand then when do we get to a a level where we are testing enough people to safely and securely kind of start to go back to normal? Well, you know, as the number of cases starts to drop, that'll free up more tests to go out there and be able to test, uh, to, to loosen our parameters for testing. So, so again, as the test, as the number of cases goes down, we'll be able to expand testing, and that'll be important because that'll help us keep a really good track of cases as they rebound when we start easing up on some of the public health interventions. Uh, we fully expect that as we let people come back into society and do their things, we'll see some uptick in cases. What we have to be is prepared then to identify those cases and um, isolate and quarantine those individuals instead of having the entire society um, undergo the, the same kind of public health interventions. Are we going to need an app 
like China has that basically says, okay, I was tested, I'm okay? Well, you know, the, it, we have the, I'll say it's an advantage, and that we can see other parts of the world who are now past their peak and are trying to deal with things. And there's lots of different approaches there in terms of understanding who's immune, who can go out, and who's um, potentially getting exposed to, um, to, to virus in, the, in, that, in that plateau phase. So um, we have a lot of things to, to, to try to get working here, but we have some examples to use from countries in Southeast Asia uh, where, where they have been able to control the virus. I do want to bring back uh, Dr. Andy Pekash, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, um, the school is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. So, Dr. Pekash, so what do you think is the most important thing that's going on right now in terms of getting the virus under control? Well, I think that the public health interventions that have been put in place all across the country are working. You know, it takes, because this virus has such a long incubation period, uh, it takes two to three weeks before we start seeing the true effect of what we've been doing in terms of the numbers of cases and the numbers of fatalities. So things are working. Uh, now's not the time to take our foot off the gas pedal. We need to keep these things going and drive this forward uh, until we get past the peak in most parts of the country. And so, Dr. Pekosh, very basic question for you. You know, from the perspective of our listeners out there trying to live their everyday lives, what do you recommend in terms of masks? What do you recommend in terms of, like, people getting exercise? Can they go running with friends? Can they take a walk? Like, what should people be thinking about? What have we learned about this virus that maybe is helping us refine what social distancing and what our interaction in public, as limited as it is, should be? Yeah, so getting outside, uh, walking around, running, exercising outside is fantastic. Um, keep your social distance from people. Uh, try not to run next to each other. Try not to um, uh, get too close to people as you're talking. But getting out and exercising is a, is a wonderful thing to sort of break the monotony of being inside all the time. Um, if you're going out for your grocery runs or to do something else, uh, you know, essential, um, it's great to have a mask on. Um, the CDC has now updated its guidance uh, and wants everybody to be wearing masks when they go out, even just cloth ones. Um, again, that happened because we're realizing how many um, people are having mild symptoms but still able to spread the virus. So this is really meant to try to capture that small percentage of the population that might be spreading the virus and not know it. Um, and um, again, now is not the time to let up on these things. Yeah. It may be difficult, but we have to keep going. So, okay, I do wonder how our world has changed. I mean, it's obviously changed in a lot of different ways, but, I mean, is it all about getting a vaccine so that we can ultimately really get this under control? Is that the final solution to this? Or is it a case of, you know, it's going to mutate and we start all over again? Well, right now it doesn't look like this virus is going to go away anytime soon. So um, a real important uh, key will be our tool will be to get a vaccine because when we have a vaccine that's when we can go out and really start immunizing the vulnerable parts of our population and really make a big dent in terms of the disease that's that's being caused in the disease severity in the population um, we'll have to see how things go over the next few months as more and more people become immune to the infection um, and how the virus will be spreading at that con at those times but does that also mean then big gatherings, whether it's sports events, um, going back to college, like things like that, they will just, they cannot happen for a while. Uh, really large gatherings, 
it's very there's very little chance that that can be put back in place uh, anytime in the near foreseeable future because um, what we're seeing from other parts of the country or from other parts of the world is that the virus never really goes away mm. like we have with like we see with influenza mm. um, it seems to be hanging around um, at all parts of the year and once once it goes through the population there's still some some people left around who are spreading the virus so um, Gradual rollbacks of some of the public health interventions may be occurring, but I don't foresee going back to 70,000-person football games uh, in the near future. Yeah, it's really amazing you know, we hear about that yeah. and hear about what the new normal uh, may ultimately look like. Dr. Andy Pekosh, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you again. Always such a great voice to bring us the real scoop on what's going on out there, especially as we start to wrestle with some really big questions related to what it looks like on the other side of this. He is Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. As you can tell, it is supported <laughs> by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Great resource. They have all been, and uh, Dr. Pekosh included. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I have to say, I was just following Twitter, and my brother just tweeted, everyone should buy stamps. And it was in response to somebody <laughs> saying, listen, these postal workers are out there on the front line, you know, delivering our packages, you know, delivering our mail. Um, but Jason, it's a tricky time for them. It absolutely is. Uh, a fantastic story uh, coming up in this edition of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, but you can read it now online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Devin Leonard wrote it, Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey, as does Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. He joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. And Joel, I want to start with you. Uh, Devin is our go-to guy figuring things out in terms of the governing. He certainly has been uh, over the last couple of years. We've relied heavily on him. What teed up this story for you? Well, I mean, Devin's actually written a book about the yes. Postal Service. So that was like the, the, the one where I, in the middle of all this, I was like getting mail. And I was just so looking forward to getting my mail every day. Um, and I was like, what's going on with the Postal Service right now? So it's like I sometimes it feels like I have this like bat phone and I get to call certain people and ask for help. And so Devin was obviously top of mind a couple of weeks ago when we pulled this up. And, you know, I think it's just a really compelling story because there are certain um, humans that are really on the front lines right now. And the Postal Service is really that. And it's, uh, you know, absolutely essential form of communication still. And um, they're also not getting the support that you might expect. Devin, how, how does that, what did you learn about that on that front? Well, I mean, it's, the, it's probably the nation's oldest essential service. And, you know, the, you, know you, get, you get your mail through, well, I guess as you were saying, you know, neither rain nor snow nor coronavirus. And, you know, even when a disaster happens, when, when you know, mail delivery stops, like 9-11 or Katrina or something like that, once you see those letter carriers, you know, going around the street, that's when you have a sense of, you know, oh my God, you know, you know, you know, we're, we're back to normal. And you know, this is a really tough situation because, like, you know, doctors, nurses, cops, firefighters, you know, these, the, you know, the people who work for the postal service, they're, they're sent, you know, they're providing an essential service, but they didn't have, you know, the masks, the gloves, you know, you know, the. Uh, the the hand sanitizer that they needed, but they had to go out in the midst of in the midst of you know you know this crisis and you know a lot of people are getting sick, people weren't going weren't going going to work, but you know as as, as you say, 
we're still getting our, we're still getting our mail. It's just kind of amazing. I have to say, just like Joel, I mean, there is something in my home too. It's like, oh, the mail came, like, or or package, you know, because it's just kind of it's the world we're living in right now. The thing is, Devin. The U.S. Postal Service has been struggling for some time. And, you know, as you rightfully write about, it's, you know, here we need them more than ever. And yet, you know, the the future continues to be so uncertain for the U.S. Postal Service. Well, Carol, you're, I mean, you're right. You know, they were in trouble before this. But they've been in trouble for a while, pretty much, you know, you know, almost two decades now. But right now they're just getting hit really hard, like, so many other governments, so many other businesses in the United States by just a total, you know, drop off in business. I, I guess we found out just on on Thursday, uh, Megan Brennan, the Postmaster General, told Congress that they expect mail volume to drop, you know, on a year to year year over year basis by fifty percent, you know, you know, by the summertime. So, so you know, they were already in a tenuous financial situation. They've told Congress that. They might run out of money in as early as June. So, you know, you know what's what, what? What is the question? And and uh, um, Congress did just just allow them to, you know, with the approval of President Trump, allow them to borrow ten billion more dollars. But I don't th- I don't think that's enough. Also, just borrowing more money doesn't you know doesn't solve their problem. You know, they, you know, Congress has to do something to really change their business model to get them out of this. And Devin, what role does the private sector play in all this? Because, you know, we think about Amazon, we think about all that we're relying on in terms of, of delivery here. But take us into the, to that side of it, sort of the private versus public. Well, you know, the UPS, FedEx, you know, and, and you know, now Amazon, well, now Amazon, you know, Amazon's more recent because I've been doing this for a while. They they deliver a lot of packages, but you know, in terms of overall mail volume, they don't deliver any anywhere near you know you know the volume that the United States Postal Service does. And also, right. the Postal Service has to hit every address in the country six times a day. Sorry, yeah, so six days a week, and also you know sometimes on on Sunday now. So, if you were just to do away with the Postal Service, those those private sector companies, you know, you know, would serve the urban areas and areas where there's a lot of volume where they can make money, but they wouldn't do everything the Postal Service does. And so, so how does this get resolved? I mean, because we also see, and, and you alluded to this, you know, the, the president did step in, but uh, at the same time, he's been uh, very skeptical about how all of this uh, works and how the U.S. Postal Service uh, fits in. What's the next step in all this? Well, look, I, I mean, what really needs to happen is something, you know, this should have happened a while ago, is that, you know, Congress needs to, you know, you know, basically revamp the, the Postal Service's business model so they have more control over, over costs and so, they, so they can they can raise revenues. You know, they have they have no real control over the, over over their pricing. But that's not going to happen right now, you know, with, with you know, you know, with this crisis, you know, you know an economic crisis along with a health crisis. So right. I think in the end. They're going to get bailed out, which is what Trump didn't want to have happen. You know, a lot of Republicans too, but I don't think they really have much choice. And and also, when we're talking about voting by mail in November, I mean, they 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 need a lifeline. Even though even though they're the ones, the Postal Service itself are saying we need new we need new business model. They're not just asking for money. Well, does the world feel like we still need it? I mean, in terms of the way we communicate, I mean, what's the thinking from you know, some of the experts that you talk to, uh, Devin? Well, I mean, 
you you make a really good point, which is which is that you know when's the last time you know you you wrote a letter, you know the the postal service was more important to you know Americans you know a century ago you know two centuries ago when there was no, when there was it was the main way that people communicated, but he, but even now you know we we need it for for a lot of basic things we you know we need packages there is still some some you know some hard copy mail mail that we need you just can't get rid of it for the reasons I was saying, but we're also we get medicine and, you know, and things like that. And there's all these people, there's, I shouldn't say there's all these people, well, there's a fair amount of people in, in the country who don't really have internet yet. So, you know, rural areas. So, I, I mean, there is an argument in some circles that it should be privatized. It's happened in, in Germany. It's happened in Great Britain. It's happened in Sweden. And, and, and it works there. It, but we're just so far from, we're so far away, you know, from, from even sort of contemplating that here that, that to sort of propose it and say, that solution, we, and we need to do it tomorrow. That's just not going to happen. It's just, you know, it's amazing, Joel, like something we just take for granted, right? And, or just assume, but it's, it's the times have changed a lot over the last decade. It, it, for sure, you know, but, you know, the other thing that I just want to say that, Devin, and this, you know, warrants everyone reading it, really, is, you know, there's also, like, this labor element on top of it. And I yeah. think one of the other things that Devin did a great job of bringing to light here is, like, what it's like to actually be organizing on behalf of the Postal Service um, amid all of this. Um, and so just on that note, that's, like, another fascinating element of the story that um, is just, you know, a, some great nuance from Devin. Well, definitely check out the story, everyone. There's so much details. Uh, also check out his book as well on the U.S. Postal Service. Our thanks to Devin Leonard, Projects and Investigations Reporter at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone along with Jill Weber, Weber editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Andy Brown is with us. He's a little further north than we are up in New Hampshire. He is, of course, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us on the phone. Uh, so, Andy, take a look around uh, at the world and tell us what you see because we are seeing different leaders. We've heard from a lot of them today uh, step into the breach here, governors especially, some mayors here and there. But take a global view of this. What are we learning about leadership? Yeah, so, you know, the story that we've all been listening to in recent years about leadership and power in the 21st century has been very much a binary one. Uh, East versus West, uh, China versus the U.S., uh, the incumbent power versus the challenger. And the big unknown is, will they go to war as they struggle over global supremacy? And, you know, I mean, this story has never been particularly satisfactory because it's, it's never taken into account the wishes of smaller yet still pretty powerful regional countries and economies like India and Japan and Australia and the Middle East, Iran. But, you know, this coronavirus seems to have completely blown this narrative out of the water. Um, you know, it, it, it is now clearer than ever that neither the United States nor China have the aptitude right now for global leadership, nor, frankly, do they seem to have much appetite for it. Andy, take a step back, though, because last week you guys kicked off Bloomberg New Economy Conversation Series, uh, which was an online gathering, folks from more than 60 countries. You had some really high-profile people talking. Um, obviously, leadership came up in this. Um, I am curious you know, who, who you guys talked to and, and some other uh, main topics that kind of came away from that discussion. 
Yeah, this, this, well, I mean, this really, I would say this, this was the main uh, conclusion to emerge. And we had Joe Nye, who was the architect of this concept of soft power. We had um, Michel Flournoy, who was the former deputy undersecretary uh, of defense and uh, may well have been a uh, defense secretary had Hillary Clinton won the last election. And Jason Furman, who was, um, you know, President Obama's, uh, one of President Obama's uh, chief uh, economic aides. But this, this issue of leadership came up again and again and how the U.S., and China have performed in this global once-in-a-century crisis. And frankly, both China and the U.S. came in for a battering, you know. I mean, so on the Chinese side, yeah, sure, the, economist, the economy is, is, is substantially up and running, and China is now in a position to provide aid to some parts of the world, even though they're scoring all kinds of propaganda points out of it. But, you know, the world will never forget that the corona outbreak began in Wuhan. And, you know, Wuhan was saturated with this virus. Uh, and this virus was being carried to the rest of China and the, and, and the, and the whole world, while local officials there were engaged in a cover-up, you know. And, and by the same token, you know, the point was made that neither will the world forget the images that we're seeing right now in real time coming out of the United States, you know, the, demonstrating the, the frailties and the fragilities of multiple systems in the U.S. I mean, the healthcare system, you know, doctors in emergency rooms wearing ski goggles and nurses wrapping themselves up in garbage bags and you know the failures of the uh, of governance with with the, the fumbled response from federal government, patchwork response in states. You talk about states, you know, where red states and blue states apparently going in different directions, and one part of America locked down, Florida still partying out on the beaches and so on, and then the social systems. You know the the long food food lines now, you know, yeah. uh, and this is this is this is really shocking to to people all around the world who are looking at the most po- the richest and most powerful country in the history of the world. One thing in 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 the column that you wrote to Andy that really jumped out for me, and this was from uh, something Jason Furman said, uh, who said no, he said no economy will be safe until the entire world has this pandemic under control. I mean, this whole idea of you know, we just heard from six governors in the New York metro area because they are talking about in order to reopen the economy, you have to have a coordinated event, you know, and response. You can't just, you know, everybody come up with their own plan. And we really need that on a global scale. And we're lacking in that. That's exactly right, Carol. That, that's the point that, that, you know, not just Jason, but they, they were all making that this is a common challenge. It requires a collaborative approach. And what's truly depressing about this is that it is, by, it is, it is not at all the only global challenge, common challenge that we face. Um, and, you know, if this is, if this is the botched failed response that we've seen to coronavirus what about an what about an even bigger crisis which is which is climate you yeah know, what hope is there for global collaboration on that it's so interesting you bring that up because i do wonder about things like climate and cooperation going forward you know we have a promo running about bloomberg green saying you know this is the biggest crisis of our time it's like it is one of the biggest crisis yeah. crises of our time uh at this point so only about uh 40 seconds left here andy what does this portend for U.S.-China relationship, just to take us all the way back to the beginning? Where, where does U.S.-China go from here? So uh, U.S.-China, I'm afraid it, it just digs these 
two countries deeper into a hole. I mean, it, it almost is another, almost literally another nail in the coffin. Um, you know, and then the, one, of the, one of the conclusions from our, our inaugural conversation was, you know, what does is, what is future power look like? I mean, uh, and it's likely to be, there's a vacuum, you know, anarchy, law of the jungle, um, at best, a regional response to what ought to be, you know, to to what ought to be a joined-up, coordinated, um, you know, global effort against common problems. All right, Andy Brown, thank you so much, editorial director of New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. Hope you continue to stay safe. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Randy Watts is back with us. Great timing, too, to have him here. He's executive vice president and chief investment strategist at William O'Neill and Company. Today we find him on the phone from Miami. Um, Randy, nice to have you back uh, here with us. Uh, you doing okay? Your family's doing okay? Uh, they are. I appreciate you asking, and I hope everyone is uh, uh, safe and healthy there in New York. Yeah, yeah, we're certainly uh, we're getting there and certainly dealing uh, with our. Doesn't our look like Miami outside my window, <laughs> though. I'll tell you that much, Randy. It is the opposite uh, at this point. Yeah, I understand the weather's been quite bad up there. Yeah, it's pretty miserable today. I was thinking, I was looking back over my notes, and I think you were with us late February, um, and it was a day where we were all, of course, worried about the virus. We weren't, we were back in our studio, but we weren't at home. Um, The market was selling off because of concerns about the virus. That was our theme for the day. How do you see the markets right now? We saw a tremendous amount of selling. Um, Randy went into technically a bear market. Uh, we've bounced back a lot. How do you see it when you look at all of your charts and you do some analysis? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, this has been a very, very strong rally. We're up about 27% off the lows in three weeks. Uh, we would ex- expect either some consolidation here or even a move backwards. This is a much stronger rally than a typical sort of up 9 to 10% bear market rally. I think one thing to keep in mind, though, is we're only in the ninth week of this bear market, and usually bear markets last more than 30 weeks. Mm. In addition, at the low, the market was down about 35% on the S&P. A normal bear market takes it down, takes it down to about four, down 42%. If you look at where we sit this, today, this afternoon, the Dow's down about 18% yeah, year-to-date, the S&P's down 15 and NASDAQ's down about 10 so I am a little nervous about two things. First, the time element of what's going on. We're not that deep into it in terms of weeks. And second, we're going into earnings season, and I think earnings season is going to be a lot worse than the street expects. Well, let's talk about that. Let's go a level down there because I feel like we're all bracing ourselves for, for earnings season. But what does bad look like in, in your estimation, either in terms of 
percentages or in terms of maybe even a lack of visibility? Because that's one of the things that we've heard so consistently uh, from CEOs as they've given even you know ad hoc updates is they just don't know uh, where this is going to go next. I mean, that's true, Jason. They don't know. And about 15% of the S&P 500 now is suspended guidance for the year. If you look at where earnings estimates are for the S&P 500, at the start of the year, people were expecting the S&P to earn about $175 this year. That number's down to 147 But if you look at it on a year-to-year basis, last year earnings were about 162 So consensus estimates right now are only looking for about a 10% drop in earnings, and I suspect it's likely going to be worse than that. You know, I want to go back to what you said, though. We're only in the ninth week of this bear market. Usually last you know, a usual, typical, normal bear market lasts around 30 weeks. Is this normal, though, Randy? Like, there's a logic si- logical side of my brain that says, I get what's going on. We shut down the economy. Of course, it's going to be really, really bad. But I do wonder, and this is just, I shouldn't just say just, but it's really a timing element, that when we reopen, people get back to work, they will resume sp- spending, that we could see a pretty dramatic bounce back. I think the key on that is really unemployment. So, you know, we entered this scenario with about 3.5% unemployment. We've done about 16 million jobless claims in the last three weeks, which means unemployment today, the real unemployment number is probably in the 13 to 14% range. To put that in perspective, unemployment in the 2009 recession peaked at 10%, and in the 1982 recession peaked at 108 So unemployment's already a lot higher than it was in the last couple of recessions. And I think the question for the economy is how quickly are those people going to get hired back? If we start opening the economy, I don't think that means that all those restaurant, hospitality workers, et cetera, instantly all get hired back. And so that question of job absorption is really what makes me nervous. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such the the big question, right, is – it reopens to Carol's point, you know, it reopens and people get back out there. But if a restaurant, I mean, this is just very parochial, but like if a restaurant can only seat half the people that it used to because of social distancing, right. how many people does it need? You know, does it, and, and how many, what's the, the revenue breakdown and the profit breakdown? And does the fact that there are, you know, fewer people working ultimately mean that there are fewer people spending money? Yes. in in general, uh, I just have such a hard time in part because nobody knows. And it just goes back to this. Nobody knows it. And yet you have to make investment decisions, Randy. Exactly. And I I don't want to be too bearish here. Um, I do think we're going to get through this. I do think the economy is going to recover. We do expect 2021 to be a better year for both the economy and for corporate earnings. But I think the point I'm really trying to make is, one, the market's had an awfully big move in a short period of time from its low. I'd like to see the market digest that a little bit. And second, I just think this going into earnings season right here today, there's a lot of uncertainty. I'd prefer to see us start to get into some of these company reports See what companies are telling you about profitability before really getting aggressive and adding capital right here. So what do you do for an investor? You're saying what? Just, I mean, just kind of ride this Wait out a little bit? Wait for some reports? I think, we're, I think we're looking for two things. First, I'd like to point out that in this bounce, a lot of the stocks that bounced were not what we would call leadership companies. There were a lot of companies that have been very beaten down the last month or so, and those were the ones rising. The action today is actually more positive in a way in that a lot of the more high-quality companies are having good days, you know, names like Amazon. I think what we're looking for here is to see leadership stocks and companies start to do better 
uh, relative to the market and to start to add some of those names into your portfolio that you know are going to not only some, some guys are even going to benefit from what's going on, you know, whether it's an Amazon, a Microsoft, et cetera, or end companies that we think can be long-term holdings. We really don't want to chase some of these beaten down names and the hoping they're going to bounce even more yeah. than they have already. Hmm. All right. Great stuff. So smart. Love yep. Randy Watts. Yep. Love him too. That's great. All right. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill and Company, joining us on the phone from sunny Miami. Good for him. Happy to hear his voice and that yeah. he is uh, safe and well and uh, some good insights as always. He's taking a ton of notes, a ton of notes about his market insight. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.